morning. It's good to see each and every one of you here today. And I'd invite you to take your Bible, if you would, and go with me to the book of Acts, chapter number two, please. The second chapter uh, in the book of Acts is where we'll uh, find our text this morning. And um, certainly thankful again for uh, just the opportunity to be in God's house and uh, serve the Lord and worship the Lord together here in this place. And I certainly appreciate the music ministry, uh, those again playing instruments and those uh, using their uh, voices to lift uh, their praises to the Lord. What a beautiful special. I don't know that I've ever heard that song before, but I was so encouraged and helped by it and hope that you were as well. Acts chapter number two is our text. We have been uh, preaching a series on the great chapters of the Bible and uh, spent some time in the Gospel of John on several uh, chapters. And we now come to the second chapter in the book of Acts. And the Bible um, introduces that chapter in verse number one. And it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we might ask the question, well, what was the result of them speaking in other tongues and the Holy Ghost coming upon them and filling them? The Bible gives us the result of that at the end of the chapter. In verse number, uh, verse number 41, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Perhaps the most or the second, I should say, greatest day in church history is recorded for us in Acts chapter number two. You'd say, well, if this is the second greatest day, what's the greatest day? I don't suppose you can top the day in which Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. In fact, without that, there is no church history. There's nothing for us to preach. There's nothing for us to worship and, and for us to gather around on a, on a daily or a weekly basis. And so uh, I, I think that has to stay at the top of the list. But right behind it, I believe, perhaps is this day, a day known as Pentecost. And of course, it's known as that because it's identified for us in Acts chapter 2, and verse number one, Pentecost was one of the great feasts observed annually by the Jewish people. It began exactly 50 days after the Passover. And the scripture reveals that when this feast of celebration was at its absolute peak, in verse number one, it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come. In other words, anyone that was going to be in Jerusalem for the celebration of this feast, at the event on the day in which this happened, they were all there. The day was fully come. The events that are recorded for us took place. And this reminds us, I believe this reminds us that God is never early. God is never late, but that God is always on time. Uh, there, are, there are moments in our lives in which we think to ourselves, you know, if I were God, I would have done this by now. And by the way, aren't you glad you're not God? aren't you glad the person sitting next to you is not God? That's a comforting thought, right? Because God is never early. God is never late. God is always, always on time. 
that's identified and reinforced for us in the very first verse of this second chapter, that when this day was fully come, when everyone who was going to be there, who, who needed to be a part of this day, who needed to hear the message that was going to be preached on that day, when they were all assembled and when they were all gathered in this place, that's when the Holy Spirit of God showed up and he began to work. Now, God's work in the Old Testament was primarily among and through the nation of Israel. I think that's a pretty commonly understood and commonly accepted thought or idea. However, his work in the New Testament and over the past 2,000 years has been primarily among and through the local church. Paul calls the church the house of God. He calls it the pillar and ground of the truth in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15. He writes in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 23 that Christ loves his church and that he gave himself for it. He told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 that they literally were the body of Christ. And I must tell you that if you and I are not careful, we can develop a, a somewhat careless attitude of indifference towards the church. We, we can. We see that in our day and age. We see that in our culture and in our generation. And let me just say that things that God loves and God emphasizes, you must know that those very things the devil hates and the devil tries to marginalize. But we must acknowledge that what we do here, what we're doing here today, it matters. And it, just, it doesn't just matter for today, but what we're doing here today matters eternally. It's a big deal. What is happening here? What's going on here? Perhaps, perhaps maybe you, you were like um, some when you woke up this morning and you looked out the window and you saw some of the snow flying, that maybe, just maybe, there was just a little bit of seed of temptation in your heart saying, you know, maybe we ought to stay home today. Maybe we ought to just watch it online today. It seems like it'd be so much nicer to maybe light a fire in the fireplace and, and boot up the preacher on the, the iPad or on the computer screen. And I want you to know something. Uh, you made the right choice by coming. Now listen, we're Northeast Ohioans. If we can't handle what's out there today, we're in for a long few months, right? This is nothing. But you, you, you know, you know how it is. You know that the spirit indeed is willing, as the Bible says, but the flesh is weak. I, um, I, I, was, I was given something this morning that was somewhat humorous. Someone handed this to me, and I got a good laugh out of it. But, it, but I, I think in some respects it maybe, it maybe reinforces this, this idea of the fact that what, what, what God does here is so very important, but the devil wants us to have sort of a mindset that is, that is sort of given a, a, away from it or against it. Listen to what this, this writer said. He said, I assume you are like me. I can get itchy skinned and scratchy throated after an hour or so of church. I can get distracted and cranky when it goes too long. My feet ache. My backside numbs, my eyes glaze, my mind fogs, my belly growls. I find myself fighting back yawns and then not fighting them back, letting them gape and roar, a signal to my oppressors, let my people go. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. The final, the final phrase of this is this, and I'm the pastor. <laughs> 
And, and, and sometimes there is, a, there is an element, isn't there, that uh, we, view, we view church as, as sort of a, you know, a, just another exercise that we sort of have to endure and that we have to get through. And, and, uh, and, and, and we almost have to psych ourselves up on Saturday that we're going to get up and we're going to get the kids out of bed and we're going to go to church. And, and, uh, and, and, and little things maybe can get in our way. And I just want to remind you that God's people, listen, God's people should possess a heart that beats for the church. Why? Because our Savior's heart beats for the church. Because the heart of God beats for the church. And because Jesus, the Bible says, gave himself for it. Now please understand that Pentecost, contrary to popular opinion, was not the beginning of the church. But it was the beginning of the expansion and rapid growth of the church. Prior to Pentecost, the church numbered 120 committed members or disciples according to Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 15. But after Pentecost, the church numbered 3,120 committed members and disciples. Can I say that to see a church expand like this, I believe necessitates a deeper dive into study of this chapter. What happened? What happened on this day that so launched or propelled the church to a place where it literally changed the world that they were living in and, and even to the point where it is perpetuated still to this day? In other words, what took place on this day that has led to all of this? Likely, likely on your way here this morning, you drove past maybe 5, 10, 15, or 20 other at least buildings that have the name church. And to think that at this point in time in human history, there is just one church. It is the church that is at Jerusalem, and there's just 120 that are a part of this assembly. By the end of this 12-hour period, or however long it was in which they were engaged in this ministry work, there are now 3,120 to the point where today, who knows, there are millions of Christians alive on planet Earth that are involved and engaged in a local church. How does that happen? I believe it's recorded for us here in our text. I believe that this chapter provides the secrets that really aren't so much a secret that will lead to a church that is alive and thriving and influential in their community and in their culture. The church took off on the day of Pentecost, and here's why. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. What does this chapter teach us about the Holy Spirit's work among these believers and how God used them in such a great way? I believe the first four verses reveal to us, number one, that unity preceded the Holy Spirit's filling and then subsequent church growth. That it begins right here. It begins with a group of believers who are unified. I read recently about a Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy walks into the room and demands that Linus change the television channels, threatening him with her fist if he did not do what she requested. And he looked at his sister and he said, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Lucy holds up her hand and she said, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. (laughs) Linus replied, which channel do you want? (laughs) Turning away, He looked at his fingers and he said, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) Unity, it's an incredible, 
incredible thing. The Bible says about this group of believers that they were unified. First of all, we discover that they were of one mind. The Bible says in verse number one, they were all with one accord. Now understand that when Christ was with them, there were, there were certain moments of strife and moments of contention. They were striving for position and striving for place. I was just reading my own personal Bible reading this morning in Mark chapter number nine, where they were sort of fighting and warring with one another over who was going to be greatest. Jesus discerned that they were having this conversation. He stepped in and he reminded them that those who will be great in his kingdom should be the least. And those who, 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 want, to, uh, who want to be great, they'll, they'll end up being the least. And, and, and Jesus sort of had to set them straight. There were other times in which they were requesting things like this. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand? And can my brother sit on your left hand? These types of things were not at all uncommon during Christ's earthly ministry among his followers. And it would seem, however, that the resurrection of Christ and him breathing on them the Holy Spirit in the upper room on that same day, and then his ascension seemed to have corrected any lingering desires for supremacy within this group. Perhaps out of necessity, these disciples were, were now spending more and more time together, and they were praying together more than they had done previously. Look in the previous chapter. Look at Acts chapter number 1 and see what the spiritual exercise and activities of the church was. Look in verse number 14. Then all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And so you might ask yourself the question, well, why were they so unified? Why were they of one accord? And why sometimes do I find that I'm not of one accord with my church family or sometimes even with my own immediate family. Where does that come from? And I believe it comes from this thought or this idea of understanding and acknowledging the work that Christ has finished and then spending lots of time in prayer and in supplication. They were of one accord. C.H. Spurgeon wrote these words. He said, to remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray? that they may be one even as we are one? A chorus of ecumenical voices keeps harping the unity tune. What they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite. Such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. End quote. And I just would say a, a good hearty amen to what C.H. Spurgeon said all those years ago. Now listen, if we believe the same thing, if we are unified in doctrine, uh, if we are unified in truth, if we've been sanctified through the word of truth, then we can experience and we ought to experience unity. We ought to be of one mind. And when we are, the Holy Spirit of God is unhindered. He can show up in our midst because we are of one accord. But notice, not only were they of one mind, but notice, secondly, they were in one place. You know, there is a power in gathering together. I want you to think of, of something that is known in the sports realm as home field advantage. You know, uh, 
a regular season is played out and we understand that they're playing those games to determine who's going to go to the playoffs. Uh, Who's going to make this special round of the best teams to determine who is going to win a championship? And and an entire regular season uh, is is played to determine seeding in those playoffs. The top seeds, the best teams, are given something that is known as home field or home court advantage. There's something about going into an opponent's stadium and that place filled with thousands of people all cheering and all, uh, all uh, yelling and screaming and hollering uh, for their side, for their players. Uh, those players, those athletes, though they're all world-class athletes, it seems as if maybe they rise to another level in their skill and their ability and their athletic prowess based on the, the, uh, the, the home team cheering them on and all all of those fans shouting their name and crying aloud when their team does something good. You know, a synergy exists when we are in one place. There's something about it. I can't fully explain it, but I just have to tell you, this building and this property has a different feel Monday through Saturday than it does on Sunday. There's just something different about it. I walk through here, I arrive every Monday morning, and I, uh, I sometimes have to walk through this auditorium to get somewhere, or maybe something was left in a pew and someone wants me to get it for them, or whatever the case might be, I walk into that lobby, my office is right off of that lobby, and, and it just feels like a different place. On a day like that, it's just a sort of a normal building. There's nobody here. There's no music that is being played. There's no fellowship and activity that's going on. There's nobody standing there at the door greeting and handing out bulletins. The offering boxes have been put away. And, and, uh, and, and, and all of the things that we're used to when we come into God's house are, are not here. And I just have to tell you, there's something about this building being full that changes the feel of this place. There's something about us being not just of one mind, but also for us being within the same building, within the same place. Now, I, I'm, all for, I'm all for live streaming. We live stream every service. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. There are people that tune in to this church literally from all over the world they're watching And they're hearing the message that is being preached. But you must know this, that if you're within driving distance of this place, and if you're not physically hindered, and this is your church home, you need to be here. Because there's something that happens when we're all in one place. Among Christians today, there seems to be a growing apathy or indifference to the church's gatherings. Now this may be a reality among modern Christians, but I want you to know something. It is not a reality in Scripture. When the church got together, the expectation was, you're a part of this thing, then you need to be with us. It's the Lord's day, we're gathering, and we don't pick and choose which gatherings we're gonna go to and which gatherings we're not going to go to. We are going to build our lives around the body of Christ because we're part of that body. The Holy Spirit of God can mightily empower a body of believers that is together in mind and in place. And so we discover First and foremost, that the Holy Spirit's arrival and his filling, it was preceded by unity. But notice, secondly, we discover the Holy Spirit's arrival, it provided practical power for this group of believers. We won't take time to read all of this, but in verses 4 to 11, you'll discover that 
a primary sign that, that, that the Holy Spirit had arrived was that he gave them some ability to do, do some things that they would not have been able to do in and of themselves. And specifically, that ability was to speak with other tongues. The text is very clear that they were not speaking some unknown heavenly language or gibberish, but rather they were speaking a heart or first language of people around them who just so happened to be visiting Jerusalem for this feast. In other words, the Holy Spirit provided them with power to meet a very specific and practical need that would enable them to accomplish the church's ultimate goal, which is this, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remind you, Romans 10 and verse number 17 says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, if you're going to, if you're going to have faith, if you're going to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, well then you first must hear about him. You must know what he has done for you. And where do we get that hearing from? We get it from the word of God. So the word, the spoken word becomes vitally important in connecting the dots to help someone go from being a lost sinner to being a redeemed child and son of God. And so, on this day, when the Holy Spirit of God showed up, you must understand that there are perhaps thousands of people that are visiting this particular community. They're there for the Feast of Pentecost. But because because most of them were not born and raised in this area, they're displaced Jews who are living in other places, they really don't know the Greek language, nor do they know the Hebrew language, but they've gone on this trip back home, this pilgrimage in some respects. They're here visiting this holy city, but they're really not able to communicate with anyone there, including the disciples and the apostles. So the Holy Spirit shows up. And what does he give them? He gives them the ability to speak a language that they had never studied, that they had never spoken previously, that they had never known. They do not have to spend two years in a language school environment. Many of our missionaries, before they can land on the field that they're going to, many of them end up spending a year, sometimes 18 months, sometimes two full years in another country learning the language just so that they can finally go and move into that country and begin to minister. But on this day when the Holy Spirit of God showed up, all of that was short-circuited. There was no reason, no need to invest time nor money in a language school environment. But immediately these apostles had the ability to speak in the first languages of all of those people that were gathered in that place. We know from Scripture the Holy Spirit from time to time gave divine power to heal. We know that he had the ability to give power to raise from the dead. We know that he had the ability to give power to interrupt nature. He had the ability to give power even to transform matter And can I say that all of these are great and they're incredible, but I remind you, listen, the greatest need that man has is a spiritual need. On this day, listen, on this day, no one would be physically healed as far as we know. On this day, the weather would remain whatever the weather was as far as we know. 
On this day, no one would walk into a graveyard and no one would tell someone to come forth from the dead. As far as we know, no one was raised from the dead in a physical sense. No, on this day, none of those things would happen. But listen, on this day, many would be spiritually renewed. And the gift of tongues was given by the Holy Spirit to practically address man's greatest need, which is to hear the gospel. All of those other gifts, all of those other signs were things that were used to attract people to those who could share the gospel. It's always been, it's always been that man's greatest need, man's most important need is his heart need, is the fact that he was born separated from God in desperate need of eternal life. And any gift that the Holy Spirit of God gives, listen, is always to be used, is to be used that I might have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with an individual. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. The Holy Spirit still today provides power to communicate the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Can he heal your broken body? Can he sustain you during moments of great financial uncertainty? Can he repair a broken relationship? Can he transform something in your life that is dead to be alive again? He certainly can do all of these things. But I remind you, his primary role, his primary responsibility is to point men and women to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John 16, Jesus is speaking. He says, if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Skipping down in that same chapter to verse 13, the Bible says, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Understand, listen, the work of the Holy Spirit has always been and will always be about shining the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. That's what he exists for. That's what he's all about. That's what he's passionate to do, to fill you and to fill me, to fill us with power and ability uh, so that we can practically impact our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we prepare to move on from this thought, I want to ask this question, in what way, in what way has the Holy Spirit provided you with power? And how are you using this power to practically impact your world. I'm talking about impacting your world with the gospel. Notice thirdly we discover a church functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit will be misunderstood. Would you look with me in verses 12 through 15? So here we have all of these men suddenly, without any training, without any ability to do otherwise, they're suddenly speaking languages that they've never studied before, that they've never spoken before. And look what happens in verse 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Do you see the misunderstanding here? Here's the accusation. These guys are drunk. That's why they're able to speak this way. They're not in their right mind. They're under the influence. They're intoxicated. A church that is functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit will be misunderstood. I heard of a woman who was trying hard to get ketchup out of a jar. And during her struggle, the phone rang. And so she asked her four-year-old daughter, little Amanda, to answer the phone. And because kids view the world differently sometimes, she picked up the phone, literally, she picked up the phone obediently, and she said, hello, this is Amanda. 
mommy can't come to the phone to talk to you right now. She's hitting the bottle, <laughs> the bottle of ketchup. Children, you better be really careful, those of you that have little ones in your home. You can see how quickly these misunderstandings can happen. I heard also three sons, they were discussing gifts that they had bought their mother. The first had bought, had bought her a big house. The second had bought her a Mercedes with a, with a driver. The third knew she loved the Bible, so he said he'd bought her a parrot, which had been specially trained to recite Bible verses. All she had to do was suggest a reference, and the parrot would start reciting. The first son got a letter saying that it was a very nice house, but it was too big and took all of her time to clean. The second son got a letter saying the car was much too big for her, and besides, the driver was rude. The third son got a letter saying, you're the only one who understands me. Your two brothers give me stuff I don't really want, but you're such a good son. Thank you. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> Misunderstandings, they happen all the time, don't they? Happen all the time. These men, speaking so capably in languages that they had never studied or spoken, they caused great confusion, the Bible says. Some doubt, some amazement about what was happening. Some even accused them of drunkenness and intoxication. Peter stood on that day and he clarified that this was not the result of new wine. This was not the result of drunkenness but that this was the result of the work of the Holy Spirit of God, and that it was, even, it was even fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Would you look with me in verse number 15? He says, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Peter is quoting from Joel chapter number 2, verses 28 through 32. Can I say, listen, the lost world will never fully understand, nor will they ever fully accept a church functioning under the influence, under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? That the world accepts the influence of drugs and alcohol as normal. We're, we're sort of okay with that. Oh, he's, he's just drunk. We understand. Everybody acts that way when they're drunk. As if it's somehow that's okay. It's all right. We accept, we accept that influence, don't we? We, we? we understand that. We say, oh, that's sort of normal. If you're going to drink that stuff, well, then that's what's going to happen to you. The Holy Spirit, his influence is often viewed in a, in a way that is not good by a lost and dying world. That influence is not accepted as the influence of other substances are. The Holy Spirit, listen, his influence will lead you to grow in areas like love and joy and peace and long-suffering. And the world will look on someone who's growing in these things and they'll think this to be quite strange. As you and I grow in holiness and as we grow in unity and as we grow in love, the world will entirely misunderstand it. Can I say they may even make some outlandish accusations toward us and others who exhibit such behavior and such growth. Can I say that if we existed for the world's approval and for the world's acceptance, this would be problematic. But I want to remind you, the world hates us because they hate our Savior. I'm okay with being misunderstood and even accused by them so long as I'm faithful to him and I'm functioning in the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what the goal in life is.
Not to be accepted by the world, not to be understood by our neighbors, not to be understood and accepted by our coworkers. That's not the goal. Oh, we don't want to be purposely weird or strange or offensive, but, but, but we do want to be faithful to the gospel, don't we? We do want to be right with God. We do want to be functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if those folks misunderstand us, if they even make accusations against us, well, so be it so long as I'm faithful to this book and I'm functioning in the power of Almighty God. I'm just simply saying, don't expect the world to embrace, the world to love, and the world to praise someone who is functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit. Expect just the opposite. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Notice fourthly and finally this morning, we discover the Holy Spirit of God, his work among this church leading to the greatest day, second greatest day in the history of the church, and notice fourthly, we discover that a church full of the Holy Spirit is unhindered by a wicked culture. In verses 21 through 47, we discover an incredible thing take place in the city of Jerusalem. I want to remind you before we look at this text that this was the city that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ just weeks prior. This was their audience. This was the city in which this ministry was going on. Some of these people, no doubt, that they were preaching to shouted, crucify him. Some of them shouted, we have no king but Caesar. Others cried out, release unto us Barabbas and away with this man, speaking of the Messiah. These same disciples, these same apostles that would speak in these foreign tongues on this day, that would preach the gospel, these same men had been fearful and in hiding just a few days prior but now, now here they are boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel publicly. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and his power unleashed in their lives and on their ministry enabled them to overcome the wickedness of the culture in which they were living. Just as it can do for us in 2022. We sometimes want to bemoan, we're living in 2022, what a wicked culture. Can I just remind you, the culture has always been wicked. Unsaved people have always done things that unsaved people do. They've always mocked those who are trying to live for God. They've always belittled this book and marginalized this book. They have always resisted the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, what we're dealing with today is nothing new. This has been going on for all of church history, all of it. And that's why God gives us the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, his influence and his power in our lives enables us to overcome, to be unhindered by a wicked culture. Notice the three, three things that take place you know, enabling them to overcome this wicked culture. Number one, they preach the gospel boldly and publicly. We don't have time to read it, but verses 21 through 40 contain Peter's message on this particular day. Peter does not mince any words in the introduction of his message. I want you to see the introduction. Would you look with me in verse 22? Peter's preaching, and he says this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. So he's, he's introducing his message. He says, I want to remind you of a person by the name of Jesus. You've heard of him, no doubt. In fact, many of you, many of you saw the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he did when he was here on this earth. These, these things were not just random things. No, no, these were signs from God that this man was sent by God and that he was approved by God. So, so Peter's introducing Jesus Christ to this audience. They knew who he was. Look what he says in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now that isn't boldness. I don't know what is. I mean, Peter stands in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, the same city that weeks prior had crucified Jesus. And, and he says, listen, that Jesus that, that you all crucified with your wicked hands, I want you to know who he is. He is God. He is Savior. He is the Messiah. And he is the Lord. Peter preached boldly and publicly the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses David and his writings to show them that, um, that David was not writing about himself. You see, all of these men that would have been gathered that day, they would have, they would have revered David in his writings. They would, have, they, they would not have allowed anyone to say anything negative about David, but they were okay with people saying something negative about Jesus. But then Peter says, no, hold on a minute. Let me just remind you about something. You know who David was writing about? He was writing about Jesus. David was not writing about himself. And he gives the illustrations that David wrote some scriptures in which he talked about his soul not seeing corruption and him not dying and him living forever. And then he, and then he said this. He says, you know, you know, probably not far from here, this, this David, he's buried still. This grave, you can go visit it. But there's a tomb just outside the walls of this city that is empty today. And you all know it. Therefore, David could not have been writing about himself. David could not have been writing in the first person. No, listen, David was writing about someone else, and that someone else is Jesus. And Peter preached that message boldly and publicly. He declared the gospel when the crowd understood on this day that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection proved he was who he claimed to be. They asked, what shall we do? In verse number 37, what shall we do? And the answer was swift and concise. In verse number 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So Peter, listen, Peter preached the gospel boldly and publicly. Same Peter, same Peter who denied the Lord. Same Peter who was hiding in the upper room. Same Peter who says, I'm going back to fishing. Now, several weeks later, he's standing in a public place and he is preaching boldly. He's pointing a finger at these people and he's saying, you're the ones responsible for the death of Christ. And we ask ourselves the question, how in the world did he get such courage and some, such strength and such power? Oh, I know the answer. The Holy Ghost came upon him. Amen. And when the Holy Ghost comes upon a church, a pastor, a believer, a group of believers, comes upon a family, listen, those people will be unhindered by a wicked culture. Some of you, you limped into church this morning, not limping physically, but limping spiritually. And you have been so, you have been so overcome by this world and you're so frustrated and you think to yourself, I'm never gonna live in victory. And you have to look at yourself and you have to say, well, wait a minute, could it be it's because I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit of God because an individual who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God will be unhindered by a wicked culture. He gives us victory. Notice, secondly, not only did they preach the gospel boldly and publicly, but they saw souls saved and baptized. 
Verse number 41, and they that gladly received his word were baptized. Receiving the word is salvation. Baptism always comes after someone has been saved. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Can I say that a church full of the Holy Ghost will give evidence that they're full of of the Holy Ghost. And here's how they'll give evidence. By regularly seeing people come and be saved. By regularly seeing people getting in these waters of baptism and declaring publicly that I'm a believer and I'm not ashamed of my Savior, Jesus Christ. By regularly going out into the community and knocking on doors and winning souls to Christ and bringing those people in and training them in the way that they ought to go. Lastly and finally, the new believers, they grew together with the established believers in verses 42 to 47. Can I say the new birth is just the beginning? As I stand here on a Sunday morning, I recognize my audience is so diverse. I'm preaching to some of you. You've been in this same church, maybe even in that same pew for 60 years. Been there a long time. Some of you, you, you probably have more Bible knowledge than I do. In other words, I might ought to be sitting out there and you ought to be teaching me. And you ought to be preaching to me. That can be a very intimidating thing. On the other hand, some of you, you've walked in here today for the very first time. Or perhaps maybe you've been here a few times. Maybe you've even accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But you're just getting started. Can I remind you that the new birth, listen, the new birth is just the beginning. At conversion, at conversion, believers begin a new life in Christ that is to transform every area of their lives. These new believers, these 3,000 God assimilated them. God joined them together with the 120 that were already there. And they grew along together in areas like doctrine and fellowship and prayer and unity and giving and praise. All of those things identified in verses 42 to 47, in which we don't have time to read. In the local church, listen, in the local church, everyone is to be growing. Now think about that for a minute. You see, some of you that have been around here for a long time, perhaps maybe it's been a while since you've grown. Well, that's not what God intended. Just as, if the, just as the new converts are to be growing, so the established converts are to be growing as well. There's always room for forward growth. There's always room for progress. Listen, here's what it is. We are growing together, always, always gaining new ground in our walk and in our journey. In a seminary missions class, Herbert Jackson, he told how as a new missionary he was assigned a car that would not start without a push. After pondering his problem, he devised a plan. He went to the school near his home. He got permission to take some children out of class and have them push his car off. As he made his rounds, he would either park on a hill or leave the engine running. And he used this ingenious procedure for two full years. Ill health eventually forced the Jackson family to have to leave the foreign field where they were serving. And a new missionary came to that station When Jackson proudly began to explain his arrangement for getting the car started, the new man began looking under the hood. Before the explanation was complete, the new missionary interrupted, Why, Dr. Jackson, I believe the only trouble is this loose cable. He gave the cable a twist, stepped into the car, pushed the switch, and to Jackson's amazement and astonishment, the engine roared to life. For two years, needless trouble had become routine. The power had been there all the time. Only a loose connection kept Jackson from putting that power to work. Can I tell you that as a church, if we're just sputtering along, as an individual, if you're just sputtering along in your Christian life, if you need a push every time to get you started, something's wrong. And maybe it's time for us to look under the hood. 
Maybe it's time for us to try to assess what is the cable that is not hooked up? What is the power source that I'm missing? I'm reminded every time I prepare to stand in this pulpit that I am just a tool. I could be the sharpest tool in the whole world, and yet, and yet, unless I'm in the hands of a capable, of a capable master craftsman, I'm just going to lay in a toolbox somewhere. But when the master craftsman picks the tool up and he uses it, then and only then is a difference made. And you may look at yourself and you may think, you know, I'm pretty sharp, I'm pretty impressive, I'm pretty learned, but can I say outside of the hands of the Holy Spirit of God, you are nothing. We think of ourselves as a great church. The Cleveland Baptist Church has a rich history. It's incredible what God does here on a weekly basis, but can I remind you, listen, without the Holy Spirit of God, we are nothing. Your marriage is nothing. Your family is nothing. This congregation is nothing. But in the hands, in the hands of a master craftsman, oh, when he shows up, when he shows up, incredible things happen. 